If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 160 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Richard Gerber, speaker and the author of Change, Learn to Love It, Learn to Lead It, and Simple Thinking, How to Remove Complexity from Life and Work. Before we turn to the conversation with Richard, we want to thank our sponsor for this episode. And our sponsor for this episode is Learning Technology Design, and that's our annual virtual conference designed specifically for those who work in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development. This will be our fourth time offering LTD, and we know from all the feedback we've received that past attendees have found it to be a unique and highly valuable experience. Registration is open now at ltd.tagoras.com, and through the month of November, we are offering reduced pricing as well as the opportunity to extend a complimentary invitation to a colleague or friend who has not attended LTD before. We're also offering the opportunity to be a patron for the event. This is an option that may be of interest to companies that serve learning businesses. You can find out about that option by going to ltd.tagoras.com slash patron. And we would like to spotlight some of our current patrons, including Avalar, makers of the Web Mentor LMS, and 360 Factor, makers of the Oasis LMS. You can find out more about Web Mentor at avalar.com and Oasis at oasis-lms.com. Definitely do take time to find out more about Web Mentor and Oasis if you're in the market for a learning management system. These companies have demonstrated their commitment to learning businesses by becoming patrons, so we encourage you to support them. But now, Salisa, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what you and Richard Gerver covered. Absolutely. Richard likes to explore the links between great leadership, human potential, change, and innovation. He's been speaking and writing and consulting with organizations for the last 11 years or so, but he actually got his start in primary schools in England. He's based in Derby now. And in that work, he got to see firsthand how kids are being educated. And so he has a really great perspective to share with those of us working in learning businesses and trying to fill the gaps as those kids grow up, graduate, and enter the world of employment and lifelong learning. One of his observations is that soft skills are the hard currency of today's world. We also talk about the link between leading and learning, the role of mentoring in learning, and it just so happens that one of Richard's mentors is, I know, a favorite of yours, Jeff, Sir Ken Robinson. I I do indeed love Sir Ken. Anybody who has not watched his TED Talks, uh, and millions and millions have at this point, but if you haven't, uh, you need to go watch those uh, or watch them again. I will say, though, that he is also my nemesis in a way because (laughs) one of his TED Talks is called Bring on the Learning Revolution. And of course, I have a book called Leading the Learning Revolution and trying to beat him out in search (laughs) results is just an uphill battle. But but that aside, that aside, uh, you know, the the topics that you're covering with Richard uh, sound great. And I know too, I, I believe that Richard is the first English accent we've had on the show since Andy Steggles. And there's just something about an English accent that 
brings up the quality of the show, I think. That may just be because I'm a bit of an Anglophile, but that, that's, how I, that's how I feel about it. So this is really going to be an episode you want to listen to. So without further ado, let's roll the conversation with Richard Kerr. Hello out there. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I have the privilege of talking with Richard Gerver. Richard is an award-winning speaker and the author of the thoughtful books, Change, Learn to Love It, Learn to Lead It, and Simple Thinking, How to Remove Complexity from Life and Work. Richard's a deep thinker. He likes to explore the links between great leadership, human potential, change, and innovation. I'm very excited to have you here today, Richard. Welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Uh, thank you, Salisa, and thank you very much for that humbling introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, you know, that I obviously abbreviated a lot of your life and work to, down to just those few sentences. So to start us off, I want to give you the chance to say a bit more about yourself and your work. What would you add as background for our listeners? Wow. Well, I mean, my so much of my career has been accidental. Um, I originally found myself as an educator, um, and and this is uh, this is true because I started dating um, a wonderful girl at college who was training to be a teacher, and as part of that courtship process, I told her that teaching was a brilliant profession, um, and she, being quite a hard nosed character, um, once our relationship had blossomed and looked like it was becoming a full time thing. Uh, decided that I should hold true to that. And so I found myself uh, in teaching, which it turns out was the, the second best move I made. Um, we've been married for 25 years and, and I spent a lot of my adult life in, in education, which was, she was right, was absolutely my calling. Um, the last 11 years have been an extraordinary journey. Um, I left uh, my position as a school principal 11 years ago. Um, really because people increasingly were very interested in my work and philosophy around leadership and education. Um, and I decided it was a, a fantastic opportunity for me to hopefully spread my word and my experience a little bit. So uh, I took a huge leap of faith, left a, a really good job in what had become a very high profile school, um, parked my pension and all the rest of it to become uh, self-employed for the first time in my life as uh, working as a speaker and and an author. And over those 11 years, um, various experiences and various uh, unplanned meetings uh, have led me down in this extraordinary path, which have seen me now um, passionate about the things you were talking about, you know, having worked across pretty much every sector and every type of organization, um, from large corporate organizations to SMEs through to elite sport uh, and even the music industry, um, having met some extraordinary people, um, I kind of feel that I live an incredibly privileged life now, um, passionate about human potential, human development, education, leadership, change, um, and success, but never coming at it from an academic standpoint or a research standpoint. I try and make sure that everything I do is authentic authentic and based on my own experiences and observations. And, and, you know, touch wood for the last 11 years, it's, uh, it's allowed me to be involved in, in some extraordinary things and allows me the space and time to, to think and write as well. So uh, I'm a very lucky boy. 
Well, that sounds great. I, I know that there's a, a lot in what you were saying that I can identify with, and I think some of our listeners, the, the accidental nature that they yeah. can end up uh, driving careers and, and the trajectory of lives so often uh, in particular struck me. So you touched on it, the fact that you've you spent years working as a teacher and then headmaster mm. in primary schools, and, and I'm guessing during those years that you saw and grappled with the challenges of educating kids for their future, for their, for their life, for their work. Sure. And most of our listeners provide continuing education, professional development, lifelong learning to adults. And so what I want to ask is that knowing what you know about the challenges and shortcomings of early education, what advice do you have for learning businesses that are filling the gaps that kids coming through the education system are likely to have or do have as they hit employment age? I think it's a really interesting and increasingly relevant question, really, Salisa. Um, for me, one of the things I think it's important for, for your listeners to, to acknowledge is that schools and, and sort of uh, primary education in that, in that school phase is so much designed around the idea of preparing young people to seek out and then live lives of certainty. You know, we're, we're trained almost from a very early age to do certain things in certain ways, learn certain things in certain ways, be evaluated in very specific ways for doing those things. And that will earn us, if you like, the credits of going into jobs that have certain futures, you know, in a fixed job with a fixed job description, working in a set department, working in particular industries or or organizations. And so school still does that remarkably effectively. Um, but I think that in, therein lies one of the great challenges for learning organizations, because one of the things learning organizations realize just by their nature is that the world is turning incredibly fast, that certainty is no longer the norm. And what we need are workforces of people who have the ability to adapt, to change, um, to collaborate, to take risk, to remain relentlessly curious. And I think there really lies the key. You know, in so many jurisdictions and, and schools and authorities around the world, we still deliver um, a relatively successful traditional education. But what we're still not doing are developing, and I hate the term, soft skills, mm. because to me, actually, soft skills are the hard currency of the 21st century. Mm. What we need organizations to do, I think, more and more is really hone in and focus in on developing um, new employees' ability to collaborate, to take risks, to take leadership of problem-solving situations, and to remain relentlessly curious. Um, you know, one of the things I, I see a lot from the organizations I'm privileged enough to work with, and, and some of them have very large graduate intakes, high level of professional, um, you know, graduate employees, is that whilst those young people are coming into the workplace phenomenally well skilled technically, they lack so many of those soft skills. And I think that's where um, businesses and learning businesses in particular need to start in order to fill those those skills gaps. Mm. And I, that's really wonderful that soft skills are the hard currency today um, and what, what's really needed. 
Um, I, you know, I'm thinking again that you know you've you've had these years experience um, at the early end of the spectrum working with kids. Now, you know, in these last eleven years or so, you know, you've been tackling the adult end of that spectrum, and I'm wondering what you learned about teaching kids that you also apply to teaching adults. Maybe another way to ask that is just what differences and similarities do you see between teaching kids and teaching adults? Well, I've got to, I've got to take you all the way back because where this journey and, and fascination really started for me was being in school environments where I think we had some of the world's leading experts in creativity um, and change. Uh, unfortunately for work, most workplaces, they tend to be kids under five years old. <laughs> um, and, and, but, you know, in, in, in seriousness, this has been something that's really driven my, my own research and thinking for many years. Um, why is it that young kids are so phenomenally successful as learners um, and are so incredibly adaptable and resilient in in their worlds, which, if you think about it, are changing on a, a, at least a daily basis, if not, you know, hourly. Um, yet you don't see them needing to go for therapy because they can't cope with the rate of change <laughs> in their lives, right? So they're extraordinary. And and also, by the way, you know, one of the, the things that's fascinated me since my early days as, uh, as studying to be a teacher, and I don't know how you percentage this, but I get the sentiment. We learn some between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime, apparently, before we're five years of age. So that ability to, to assimilate learning um, is extraordinary. So when you think about where um, young kids learn so successfully, as well as just their natural curiosity and their lack of fear, um, for me, it comes down to two critical elements of how I think we can structure successful learning right the way through to adulthood and, and later life even. And that is we need to ensure that learning experiences are both experiential and rich in context because very young children engage in learning because it fits within a context. And secondly, because so much of what they're doing is, is hands-on, you know, it's learning by doing. And one of the things that strikes me about the learning journey for most of us as human beings is we decrease the amount of experiential learning that goes on in our lives. So mm. the assumption is, you know, the older we get, the more sterile the learning environment becomes. Those of us lucky to go through to college, for example, will remember the endless days sitting in a large lecture hall, listening to somebody talk to us. Um, and I think one of the things that you then see replicated to an extent in, in I don't want to call it poor um, corporate training environments, but certainly less inspirational uh, corporate learning environments, is they take that same model of sitting people down and talking at them. And I think that actually one of the things we need to understand about the power of potent learning is that it comes from experiential hands-on stuff. It's about sparking um, the sensory world in which we live. It's sparking the... Um, the actual mobility and physicality of human beings. And, and I think we need to make sure that the learning we embark in has both that context and also that ability for people to do, because there's no better way to assimilate learning and more importantly, to retain important learning than getting people to experience it as fast as possible. Mm. 
So great. Yeah. Experiential focus and also that, that context and, and really tying it to the sensory world, to the real world, as opposed to the more sterile classroom environment. It's great advice. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Um, and so what I'd like to ask next is about what you see as the link between leading and learning. Um, and actually, I, I came across a blog post where you were <laughs> musing on that link between leading and learning. Um, so I, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what you're currently seeing as that view between leading and learning. Sure. You know, it's something that I felt um, right the way from my early days as as an educator. And in the early days, it, it was crystallizing itself by helping young teachers understand that, in essence, what they were doing in classrooms was around leadership as much as it was about the notion of the transfer transference of knowledge and and skills. Um, and, and as I've kind of evolved myself, I think I've become more comfortable with that view. You know, when I left education uh, 11 years ago, if somebody had said to me that I had something to say to managers and leaders in uh, businesses and organizations outside of education, I would have thought they were mad um, because I thought the two things were entirely different. But the more people I spoke to in um, corporate environments, in learning businesses, um, in other um environments and, and uh, settings outside of, of the learning um, machine, what I realized was actually that when you watch great leaders go about their business, what you're seeing are so many of the traits you see in great teachers. You know, for me, it starts with a real acknowledgement that you have to understand the people you're responsible for, um, that you're privileged enough to lead. And, and by the way, it's one of the things I passionately believe around leadership that we need to remember, that actually the greatest privilege of leadership is that you get to serve the people who work for you. And I think that's a notion that is extraordinarily important, both in, in leadership and as a teacher or a tutor in any format. Our job is to serve the people who are our learners or the people who work for us and, and with us. And that starts, therefore, with really understanding the importance of your emotional intelligence. You have to climb inside what makes people tick, whether you're teaching them or whether you're leading them. You need to understand who they are, what their motivations are, what their fears are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then your role in, in both of those situations, I believe, is to aspire to create a real sense of empowerment. You know, in many ways, teachers who do their job properly should eventually find themselves redundant with a class full of students because the students know as much, if not more than you do, mm. you know, that actually as they grow into adult lives, my aspiration for my students would be that they would go on and achieve remarkable things beyond and above anything I could ever conceive. Um, and, and that sense of real empowerment. And I think the same is true of leadership. You know, for me, great leaders, ironically, if they do their jobs well, should almost do themselves out of a job. 
job because they've created such an empowered and confident workforce that you almost can take a back step because you've created that self-leadership and that climate of self-development in the people that are working with you. So for me, I guess the keys are an aspiration to genuinely create a climate uh, of empowerment, to commit to wanting to find the strengths in the people that work with you and for you, and also to help them identify their weaknesses and areas of concern. And maybe most importantly of all, the parallel lies in your ability to develop trust and confidence. Because I don't think anybody can truly effectively learn anything if they don't feel confident enough to fail. And that becomes a real challenge of leadership and of teaching. I think the empowerment piece is especially relevant in the context of adult learners because so many of those adult learners are bringing really relevant experience and knowledge and uh, skills to the learning environment. And so I think that idea of really tapping into that is even that much more uh, important uh, when you're dealing with those adult learners at least as important, if not more important, as when you're dealing with with the kids. So, yeah, I I like the emphasis on empowerment there. (laughs) Thank you. So, in your most recent book, Simple Thinking, Mm. you're looking at, in part, you know, why we as humans, or at least as adult humans, uh, tend to make things so complicated. Um, You know, so what role do you see uh, for learning in in this search for simplicity or in, in dealing with complexity? Sure. I think this is a really interesting point. By the way, (laughs) this came um, really, the whole concept of the book came extraordinarily from an experience I had when I was working in um, Seattle a few years ago. I was doing some work for Microsoft. um, And uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners um, know and have possibly done, um, while I was there and I had some time off, I decided it would be very cool to go and visit the world's first Starbucks. Um, so, you know, I trusted along on, on my pilgrimage and, and queued outside for, for my coffee. Um, and I, by the way, uh, am a very simple coffee drinker. I drink my coffee black. That's it. That's, that's how I take my coffee, nothing else. And I'm queuing outside this place and, um, all the people going in before me are like urban poets, Elisa, you know, they are ordering, <laughs> 12 variants of a cup of coffee, including the one that still blows my mind to this day, extra hot, which I still don't understand. (laughs) But anyway, right, as I'm getting closer to the front, I'm having for the first time in my life coffee ordering anxiety because I know I'm about to walk into this shop and just say to them, look, can I have a cup of black coffee, please? I, I still don't understand the Italian su- uh, terms for the sizes. <laughs> right. you know, so I'm one of those heathens that walk in and go, can I just have a medium cup of black coffee, please? And I knew that having listened to the whoops and roars of appreciation as these urban poets had gone before me and reeled off these incredible things, I knew that I was going to look stupid. So I've got to be honest and confess that about four people from the front of this queue, and I'd been there for about an hour, about four people from my turn, I turned tail and ran out (laughs) because I just bottled it. I couldn't bear the thought of being looked at with kind of disgust and disapproval and disappointment. So, As I was running away, this is exactly the issue I started juggling with because I realized I'd been guilty of it in that moment myself. Why was it that 
my my primal reflex, my desire for something that I just enjoyed that was simple. How did I talk myself out of believing it was valid? because it was simple. And I think one of the things that so many people find daunting through not just their education, but even more so, I think, in their adult and working lives, is we seem to increasingly believe that things have to be complex in order to be valid. You know, we listen to some of our peers reel off incredible technical terms or the latest um, business jargon or whatever else it might be. And actually what it does is is gradually undermines our own self-belief and self-confidence to the point where in so many of our meetings, so many of our colleagues will say, nothing for fear of not saying the right thing. Um, and, and also, we tend to let the floor be taken by people that dazzle us with the, the, the incredible complexity of their language and all of the different books they've read and the latest systems and structures and all of that kind of stuff. And for me, what we need to realize, and, and certainly based on my own experiences and observations, is that so often we talk ourselves out of the right decision because it's so straightforward and simple. Um, the number of times, for example, as we get older, we stop trusting our own instincts and we start trusting something because it sounds cleverer or more complex. You know, I had the incredible opportunity and privilege uh, a few months ago of meeting uh, a man called Barry Barish. Uh, Barry Barish is based out of Caltech uh, and was the 2017 Nobel Prize winner for physics. Mm -hmm. uh, by all accounts, you know, this guy is, is one of the greatest brains of his or any generation, actually. And I was asking him about how he went about recruiting the team of scientists who were working on gravitational waves with him that eventually led to the Nobel Prize. Uh, and, and he'd recruited, I think it was about 143 scientists from all over the world. Uh, and he said, you know, one of the things that was really important to me, Richard, was whether they had the ability to ask daft questions. Mm. He said, because the problem with so many scientists is they try and complicate everything. And he said, actually, what I knew was that the greatest lines of research that we were engaged in would come from people who could ask questions that most scientists would laugh at. And I think it's such an important part of how we as adults uh, regain our confidence as learners and our confidence in our own instincts and knowledge. So then the role for learning there might be uh, emphasis around uh, this ability to trust our instincts or to regain the trust of instincts, this ability to, to question and to not uh, feel that we have to ignore the daft questions. Um, uh, yeah, because it seems to me that, again, you know, that we do tend to get complicated in some ways learning this idea of being highly educated, being well-read, knowing all these theories and terms and referencing the books can actually contribute to the complexity. And so, it can be a little bit of a tension in the learning world. You know, what are you contributing to simplicity or are you adding to the complexity? Do you know, it, that's absolutely right. And just to give you an example from my previous life, um, when I took over the school I was lucky enough to lead as a, a school principal um, way, way back now, um, I only got the job, by the way, because the British government felt the school was so bad that they were on the verge of closing it down. And I was the only person who applied for the job who didn't know that, hence <laughs> 
I was the only <laughs> breathing candidate. So I got the job. Anyway, I, I remember, you know, for this school had been in decline and, and increasing failure for about 10 years. And the nature of their meetings had always been about really complex concepts. And a lot of the teachers felt alienated and a lot of the teachers lacked confidence anymore in their own professional ability and instincts. Um, and I can't profess at the time it was a, a moment of genius. It came from, from something very different, which we, we don't have necessarily time to talk about today. But I remember walking into my first major faculty meeting with my academic staff. Uh, and I think scaring them a little bit, because rather than talking to them about how we improve exam results, how we improve the quality of delivery of our curriculum, how we embrace brain-based learning and, and new learning styles and all the kind of stuff that was, was trendy at the time, I turned around to them and said, how do we turn our school into somewhere as exciting as Disneyland? And in hindsight, what I realized we'd stumbled on there was a really beautifully elegant and simple question that actually resulted in some catalyzing, some extraordinary conversations. So, for example, one teacher who you could see visibly breathe a sigh of relief mm. because the question was open-ended and simple enough for everybody to engage in said, you know, that's a great question because when anyone visits Disney, what you realize is in principle it should be a place kids fundamentally hate because you're made to queue for hours and hours <laughs> and hours, right, for a ride that lasts maybe 90 seconds. And she said, you know, the really interesting thing is, in my observation, whenever I've been to Disney, it's never the kids that are having the tantrums. It's the adults. <laughs> and she said, so what is it about Disney that means that kids are prepared to go through the tough stuff because there's something extraordinary at the end of the journey? And you can see how a really simple question had suddenly engaged a group of people that had felt very intimidated and to an extent downtrodden for a long time in what became a really interesting debate and catalyst for development. And I think sometimes as educators and whatever we're doing, as, as professional trainers or anyone engaged in stimulating education, one of our first challenges is to make sure that the adults we're working with realize that education doesn't have to be an exercise in deepening complexity. And actually, some of the greatest learning that occurs in adult um, environments and, and learning businesses is deconstructing the myth of complexity mm. and helping people understand that actually so much of how we respond and how we need to think is based on our instincts and our simplification, not on that complexity. Mm. Thank you for sharing that example of, of, of Disney and uh, <laughs> how that just uh, having a, a simple question that can engage. That's wonderful. So I, this is a kind of a similar question to the last one in the sense that I want to touch on um, another of your books. In, in Change, you address the fact that the pace of change is greater than ever. And so change is an impetus for learning. You know, With this fast pace of change, what we need to know evolves very quickly, daily, maybe even hourly. But Learning is also hopefully about change. That is, we learn something and then that changes how we think or act. Um, and so I sort of see change, you know, kind of playing this. It's both the, a driver of, of learning and it's also the result of learning. Um, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that relationship between change and learning. Yeah, you know, I, I think what you've just said is is incredibly important because I think it's about the perception and experience of change um, that then 
can help define the um, experience and, uh, and, and feelings around learning. You know, so much of our lives in uh, our business environments feel reactive. Mm. You know, it, you, you can even take it to, to political situations. And, and irrespective of, you know, where you lie on the political spectrum, one thing that, that for example, in, in the States, as it is in the UK, you hear so often is it's only the first hundred days of a presidency where a president really gets stuff done. Because it's only in that first infancy that you're able to be proactive, right? After that, so much of your life becomes uh, becomes reactive. And I think the same is true in most of our business and corporate environments. As we're at a very young age, pre-five, five-year-olds, so much of our lives are proactive. You know, we're exploring things that interest us. Our curiosity is the driver to our learning, to our development, to our lives. Yet as we get older, increasingly, everything becomes reactive. So even in our studies, you know, we start to react to a syllabus that we have to learn in order to pass an exam. Mm -hmm. Um, We get into the workplace. And although in the first couple of weeks of a new job, you might feel this is new and fresh and exciting, very quickly, most of us settle into this environment where so much around us becomes reactive. So the interesting thing about the perception of the word change is people are often reflexively reflexively negative about it. Because what they're actually hearing is, oh, God, what are we going to have to react to now? Um, How much more are we going to have to do? Because that's the other thing. As we get older, we associate with the word change. It isn't actually change. It's more, more working harder, sacrificing longer hours, having to do increasingly complex stuff around the job we're already doing. So change has significantly negative connotations. And I think the same then is true of learning when it's associated with that kind of climate, because most of the learning we're engaged in at that point is how we can learn to react to things and situations that we find ourselves in professionally. So none of that is particularly sexy or exciting, because no one's frightened of change where they, when they feel in control of it. So simple things, you know, a new restaurant opens in the neighborhood and it's a, a type of cuisine you've never experienced before. But you're going to go. You're going to go and you've chosen to go. And there might be a frisson of nerves. Am I going to like this? Is the food going to be good? But actually, the overriding feeling is one of excitement. It's something you want to do, something you want to learn about because you're in control of it. You've decided to make that happen, right? So that's a positive and constructive nature uh, uh, around change. You've decided to do it and you know it's something new and hopefully it's something will change your view of the cuisine in the smallest amount. It might rock your world and change your view of, of something deeper and bigger. So that's a much more proactive, much more positive view of change and also of learning. And I think one of the things that's really, really important in organizations is in reality, we can't do it 100% of the time, but we have to find space and time for change to feel that it is proactive, that people are in control of it, that people have the opportunity to genuinely dive into something new that isn't just a reflex or a response to something that's already happening. You know, one of the things that, that I love about some of the really exciting learning environments you see in some of the really big new tech businesses um, 
like Google, for example, or Pixar, you know, where they have these universities and encourage people to just go off and study and learn something new, whether it's directly connected and related to their job or not, in the belief that the stimulation of those experiences will actually drive new curiosity and new thinking back at their desks in their day jobs, if you like. Um, and, And for me, we've got to create that kind of opportunity, that kind of promise and that kind of guarantee. And if we can find a percentage of the working week for everybody that feels like they're involved in action research, in genuine exploration, in a drive and experience of something new, we'll tend to find the perception around change starts to change and the perception around learning starts to feel far more constructive and more people want to buy into it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's really important, this idea of agency and feeling more in control and the, the impact that that emotional uh, response, that positive response then really does have on what we're capable of learning or what we're willing to learn <laughs> because we're, we're not throwing up our defenses and saying, you know, yeah, that's more work or I don't, you know, I don't yeah. want to do that. I, I have, you know, no say in the matter and I'm just here because I've been told to be here. Yeah, Absolutely. So, you know, I, I want to switch gears a little bit because um, I was struck in you know, reading about you and your work that uh, you have uh, spent time with Sir Ken Robinson. You describe him as a friend and mentor and, you know, what a wonderful thinker and person to have influencing your life and career. But it got me thinking just more generally about the role of mentors in adult lifelong learning. You know, what do you see as that role and is it something that we should look at uh, systematizing or, or providing more of? I, I absolutely do. You know, it, I just speak for my own experience. And, and you're right. You know, if, if a person's to have someone like Sir Ken Robinson as a mentor, um, you're incredibly lucky. Um, he's he's I describe him in a way as, as my professional father. Um, and, and in some ways I would still be and it's not a bad thing, by the way, I would still be the a school principal if I hadn't have met Ken. But I think the role of a mentor is not to keep you in your safe place. It's not just to nurture and to stroke your ego to say, you know what, you're doing a great job, stick at it, keep going, this is your future. I actually think mentorship is about having somebody who you know and trust implicitly, who has the capability of pushing you, stretching you, challenging you. And that's what Ken has done for me throughout my career. You know, he was the one that said, Richard, I think your work in school is done now. It's time for you to come out into the big wide world and share your experience. Um, and I remember, for example, throwing a whole host of reasons at him why that just wouldn't be practicable. You know, I had a young family. I had a mortgage. I had a good job with a solid pension plan. And he was there to constantly challenge those concepts and to keep referencing if you, if, uh, if you like in, in a coaching way, but, but I think far more intimate than that, um, to, to get me to challenge those own concepts for myself. And I remember later on, for example, when I wrote my first book and I asked him to write the introduction for me, I think one of the toughest moments of love that he showed me was having read my first draft manuscript. He came back to me and he said, look, Richard, I've got to be entirely honest with you. I cannot write an introduction to this manuscript 
because it's simply not good enough. Um, and I remember thinking once I got over the initial bruising and, mm. and ego that that was probably the greatest act of, of love mm. that anyone outside of my family had ever shown me. That absolute constructive honesty. Because what then happened, of course, was I went away, went back to the drawing board and created a book that not only I was proud of, but he was proud of too. And, and that to me was an incredible catalyst for my ability to develop and learn and be better than I was. Uh, and I think that becomes a really important part of all of our lives. And I do believe that all of us need somebody outside of our family and friendship group um, who can provide that catalyst to drive us to at least challenge our own thinking and our own behaviors and our own contexts, to ask questions of what we're doing and where we are so that we remain curious and we have that stimulus and catalyst. And I do absolutely believe that where we can, if we're lucky enough, we should all have the opportunity to access mentorship. What I don't think we should do is necessarily construct mentors because they happen to be our superior in a business or somebody who's like-minded to us or somebody who comes from a similar background. You know, although Ken and I had a lot in common and we both came from an education background, he was an academic and I was a practitioner. Um, he came from a very different world to mine, a very different part of the United Kingdom, and his life had been incredibly different. But he also had that ability to genuinely challenge me and to do so with great love and generosity. So I do think we need to help people find mentors because I honestly think for all of us, no matter what age or stage we're at in our adult lives, that kind of selfless, um, constructive challenge can only drive all of us on to be better than we think we can be. Mm. Well, you know, I realized as I asked that last question that, um, you know, I said, you know, should we look at systematizing mentorship? I realized that was probably a dangerous word to use with you because I know that one of your mantras is systems and structures change nothing people do. And actually, yeah. I think part of what you were just describing there with your relationship with uh, Sir Ken Robinson makes, uh, brought that to life. But, but I'm hoping, though, that maybe you could just unpack that a little bit mm. more, this idea of systems and structures change nothing people do. And, yes. and, and as I say, in particular, too, what that might mean for folks developing and providing learning to adults. I yeah I I think this is this is you know this is so important and goes all the way back to what we were saying at the beginning of our conversation about why as we get older we become kind of less good at being curious and creative and and all the rest of it. I think one of the great challenges I see in in organizations is in very traditional uh, hierarchical organizations what you tend to see is a belief that the people of the top should always find the solutions answers and strategies for the way we move forwards. So we have reliance cultures in most organizations that I tend to visit, you know, where people lower down the pay grade go, well, that that's their job. They'll tell us what to do and then I'll do it to the best of my ability or the best I managed to be. Um, and so what happens is people at the top are constantly coming up with new systems, new structures, new processes, and then we implement those things down. Now, what's really interesting about that is very 
very few people ever feel a sense of ownership of those processes. Very few people understand the context for why those changes and those new systems and structures are in place. And yet the, the irony is so often leaders in organizations express frustration that people lower down in the system don't seem to be engaging and participating in developmental practice. And I think what's really important is to remember that actually what we have to do before we just keep thinking that the silver bullets are always a system and structure or hiring in a management consultancy to give us a report on what we need to do next, the only way we are ever truly going to future-proof our organizations is to create cultures where change is continuous development is is ongoing. You know, I often describe really good organizations that get this right as places where the change feels as imperceptible of the daily growth of your own children. You know, when we have kids of our own, you don't see the vast change in them physically on a day-by-day basis because we're with them all the time. It's only when you look at a photograph of them six months ahead, or you know, six months behind, you realize how far they've come. And so what we shouldn't be doing are all these fanfare things where we go, oh, we've got a new change program. We've, we're going to launch this new internal process. Because actually all that becomes is another silver bullet that eventually gets gets hidden in the cupboard full of good ideas. And what we actually need to do is invest far more time and energy in helping the people who work with us and for us become more connected into the idea of their context, their roles, their purpose, and their opportunity to be part of an action research-based organization, which is more organic, where ideas spring from anywhere, where projects can can come together from one person's idea and that person assembles a team or group around them and that they work together continually to challenge and and develop their own ideas. And I think the only way you can do that is not by launching a new system or structure. It's actually starting by recalibrating the way people see themselves and see themselves within an organization. And if we put more time and thought into developing our people and those human skills, then actually what we'll find is that you tend to create learning cultures which become really quickly accelerating, but you have to concentrate on those human foundations. I love that idea of the goal being this change that's so continuous um, that it is as imperceptible as our our growth uh, of of children. So next to last question, and um, this is one we ask of all uh, leading learning podcast contributors, and it focuses on your own personal learning specifically. So I'd like to hear from you, what's one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Wow. I I think the most um, scary, that's the one I <laughs> want to show you, the most terrifying, because it's. I often find that people like me, and me included, you know, preach this stuff about take risks, push yourself out of your comfort zone, and then you find yourself trapped in your own kind of uh, routine, you know, and it's a bit like times I feel sometimes when I take to a stage or, or write a book, I feel a bit like a grandparent, you know, creating chaos in others and then retreating back to the comfort of my own home environment. <laughs> and I, an opportunity um, came up just over a year ago for me to become a non-executive director of a major European uh, business to join the board of a large 
uh, recruitment business with a turnover of about $1.5 billion uh, a year. So, so quite a big concern. Um, and I remember people saying to me, are you crazy? And what on earth do you know about that level of corporate discussion? <laughs> and the honest answer was, Salisa, nothing. Mm. Um, <laughs> but the invitation was there. They wanted me to use my skill set to help them with, with something in particular. Um, and I remember sitting at my first executive board meeting being absolutely terrified. I had no idea what those people were talking about. You know, the spreadsheets came out and I, I am just honestly, I don't even manage my own accounts, you know. So, um this, and they were talking a language which was completely alien to me, but they were a group of people who were obviously deeply comfortable in that setting and environment. And, you know, my initial reflex, I think like a lot of people, is to give your apologies and run as far away from that as you possibly can. Um, but that little voice in my own head was going, no, look, you've got to master this. And this is a great new opportunity for you. And you might be nearly 50 years of old, uh, 50 years of age, but this just proves there is always something to learn that's different and new. And I think what's happened in the last year is I've done as much research as I can. I've asked as many stupid questions uh, as I can. Um, and I now find myself, I certainly don't feel comfortable yet because these people still feel like they're from Mars to me. But but I, I'm beginning to increasingly feel that I have a value in that setting and that I'm beginning to learn something deep that I didn't know before about the way corporations function and the kind of meta language they use at, at those senior levels. And, and of course, what you then start to reflect on is the great sense of achievement that so few of us, I think, experience as adults. You know, that, that achievement we used to feel as kids, where you really struggled and struggled and struggled with something and finally achieve mastery. Um, and I think it's a huge kick. It's an adrenaline rush. And certainly that's still happening for me in that environment. But I, you know, one of the things I've had to become very confident about is admitting to people what I don't know, rather than sitting there and trying to fake it. But it's been the most extraordinary experience thus far. And the main thing, Salisa, is I must be okay because they haven't fired me yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And I think that idea of being willing to risk the fear um, and how that can often lead to a very powerful learning experience is, is something that we can all take away from your example. So final question, uh, if listeners want to know more about you and your work, where would you have them go? Well, there's my books, of course, which you've already very kindly talked about. But really, the, the center of my universe is my website, which is www.richardgerver.com. And from there, they can contact me via email. They can find more information about my books and my work, videos of some of my speeches. And the other way I'd love to connect with people is through my Twitter account, um, which is at Richard Gerver. Um, so either of those ways. And one of the things I promised that actually I wrote about in my book is if anyone does does try to connect with me directly, I make it my absolute point in principle to try and connect directly back with them rather than through any kind of third party. So I would love to be able to connect and continue dialogue with people. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Richard, and for what you had to share with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps up our interview with Richard Gerver. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 160. 
When you check out the show notes, you'll see options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. We appreciate that because it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing with the podcast. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen to the podcast. On iTunes, you can just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes, and that'll put you in the right place. And Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings play an important role in helping the podcast pop up when people search for content on learning and leading. And we would be grateful if you would check out our sponsor for this episode, Learning Technology Design at ltd.tagoras.com. Again, this is our annual virtual conference. And if you, like most of our leading learning listeners, happen to work in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development, this is an event you don't want to miss. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. Tell them about LTD, too, for that matter. But for the podcast, you can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, and that'll pop up a tweet that you can just click send on. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick the social network or other medium of your preference and spread the good word. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.